0: Since the recording of this podcast, the Scottish Government has published the first part of its National Test Programme, Preparing for Sustainable Farming, within which it sets out eligibility criteria for claiming subsidy for carbon auditing and soil sampling. It also identifies the standards which auditors and methodologies must meet. A link to this guidance can be found in the episode description on the Scottish Land and Estates website. Hello and welcome to this edition of Scotland Matters, the Scottish Land and Estates podcast. My name is Carolyn Pringle and I'm the Wildlife Estates Scotland Project Officer at SLE. In this episode, I am joined by Professor Mark Reid from Scotland's Rural College, SRUC. Amongst his many notable achievements, Mark is the Research Manager for the IUCN's UK Peatland Code. He serves on the Agriculture Reform Implementation Oversight Board, which some of you might know as the ARIOB and is currently providing stakeholder representation on behalf of SRUC within the Soil Carbon Code Consortium. In this episode, I'll be seeking some answers to some regularly asked questions relating to the enigma that is the soil carbon market and delving into the depths of the research taking place behind the scenes and the implications for land managers across Scotland. So just to start with Mark, could you provide us with a bit of background into how the Soil Carbon Code Consortium came about and how it's approaching compiling the Soil Carbon Code, please.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for the opportunity to come onto the podcast. Uh, So the UK Farm Soil Carbon Code has been developed in recognition that there is a huge increase in interest in soil carbon from the investment community. Uh, and as a result, there are now a, a range of different schemes, uh, each with their own codes, methodologies, standards that are beginning to operate at a small scale uh, and uh, work with farmers to deliver uh, interventions that can enhance the sequestration and storage of soil carbon and deliver those climate mitigation benefits to buyers, uh, typically investors who are interested in carbon offsetting. Uh, There are however concerns uh, that uh, in this fledgling market that uh, that there are a a range of different operators with uh, different levels of integrity. And so uh, the initial call was uh, we need something on a similar footing to the UK's uh, peatland code and the woodland carbon code. Uh, and, uh, and so it was with that in mind that we set out to develop the a single unitary code that uh, could be the, the gold standard, if you like, uh, for soil carbon trading in the UK. At this point, um, and this is something that we're currently consulting on, however, uh, the feedback that we've had uh, is that, uh, that, yes, there is a variety in terms of uh, different operators in this market, but some of these are doing a good job. And perhaps uh, instead of creating a competing code, we should instead be creating a framework or set of benchmark-type standards that can enable farmers um, and uh, and investors to work out which of these existing schemes uh, have the greatest integrity, uh, and in so doing, uh, enable a levelling up of uh, the weaker schemes to meet those benchmarks and make sure that what they're doing has high integrity. I'm going to talk about integrity here. What I'm talking about is that uh, as a result of someone investing uh, in your farm, that there are are real, measurable, uh, additional, and effectively permanent changes in the soil carbon that are beneficial to the climate.
0: Thank you. So you touched on at the end there the, the change, um, and I think that uh, a lot of our members when we get question, feedback. Um, They understand that a baseline assessment is the obvious starting point. Um, The cost of baselining carbon looks very prohibitive. So suppose to start with, will will there be support for comprehensive baselining in the future? And will any potential subsidization or grant funding be available to all?
1: Yeah, so I think that it's the right question to be asking at this point and that uh, we should all be thinking about baselining now. It really keeps your options open because any investor wants to know that their money is delivering additional carbon over and above what was already there. And to be able to prove that uh, what you have now done in terms of changing to regenerative farming practices, whatever it is that you've done, that that has actually delivered additional carbon, you need to be able to compare what you've got now to a baseline, what it was before. Uh, now, uh, Scottish governments uh, are in the process of uh, developing some uh, some pilots. Uh, the goal is to enable everyone to uh, be able to do baselining and for there to be subsidies for that. Uh, so uh, Scotland is uh, I think ahead of the curve in terms of the rest of the UK, but also ahead of many other countries in recognising the importance of this. And although this is uh, ostensibly uh, around public policy priorities um, and uh, getting a sense of where we are at and what we can do in terms of meeting our Paris Agreements obligations um, uh, in Scotland uh, and our, our very aggressive net zero uh, uh, targets, um, I think that uh, the, the same data then can be very useful for those who decide that they want to enter carbon markets uh, later on.
0: In terms of when they should be undertaking the baseline assessment, then should they wait for funding or is it something that potentially could be backdated if they were to put the capital in just now to baseline?
1: Um, yeah, the the details of the scheme are not yet out. So um, uh, I would never uh, bank on uh, being able to backdate something like this. Uh, so my personal advice would be, if it looks like there's a scheme on the horizon that is going to pay for this for you, then I'd wait until that scheme is out there and uh, and get that subsidy to, to do the baselining. Then depending on how long that takes, uh, there'll be a pilot and um, uh, it will take time to actually roll out. Then you might... Want to? Um, you might want to to, to push on ahead, um, but uh, but the risk is that uh, you're pushing on ahead, and yeah, six months later you could have got that for free. So uh, yeah, uh, maybe I'm just being a, a thrifty Scott here, but uh, my money would be on waiting for, for for the subsidies to come. Yeah, through.
0: absolutely. Um, I mean, there are there are also several technologies available different platforms, different methodologies, and obviously nothing's been officially recognized yet in terms of the right methodology or the right technology platform to use. Will will one become the, the outstanding operator? Will there be a sort of more open market, do you think, as to sort of several operators being recognized to undertake baseline work?
1: So the plans as I understand them are for there to be uh, an open market for this uh, and this is then going to be about having a set of standards that mean that the results that we get are broadly comparable across different operators. Uh, my recommendation would be uh, choose uh, an operator, a supplier to to do your um, uh, your carbon baselining, and stay with the same supplier um, because uh, there is still a, the chance that there will be differences, um, and you don't want to uh, to, to be having methodological uh, differences accounting for uh, a gain or a loss in carbon. So choose one and stick with it. Uh, and there's a whole load of different uh, providers out there who are currently doing this. Um, so, uh, given that I work for uh, for um, for SRUC, I should name drop AgriCalc. Um, but uh, there's uh, AgriCarbon, um, uh, uh, Farm Carbon Toolkit. I've probably got that wrong. There's, there's a whole load. You just Google um, carbon baselining, and you will get a whole load of organisations that are currently in this space um, doing things like this. Uh, So the key thing is uh, go with a a reputable supplier. uh, and um, uh, and uh, and certainly, uh, Agri AgriCalc um, is a reputable supplier already used uh, and working across Scotland. But there are others who are reputable, uh, and then stick with that with that, that supplier. I think
0: I think the important thing there for any land manager is there isn't. It's not a one size fits all approach. There there are different options there. I mean, there'll be presumably operators that will specialize in dairy industry, perhaps, or the beef industry, um, and there'll be methodologies, I suppose, that are better suited to those soil types, perhaps, or the, the environmental conditions, and um, so there'll be a, a bit of choice there, um, rather than one operator having a monopoly.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, yeah, have a look at the kind the track record, um, the options that um, that each of those suppliers have, and then depending on the kind of operation you've got, um, yeah, there, there will be choice. That's, that's the theory, Important. I
0: think. <laughs> So as land managers, there is is this requirement to prove additionality um, and obviously permanence as well as other conditions, um, including monitoring. How are land managers supposed to make the, the, the plans for the necessary changes ahead of the Code's publication if they don't understand what the requirements around additionality and permanence will be?
1: Yeah, um, so there there are existing schemes uh, out there that uh, that people can go with already, and so you can uh, look at the additionality and permanence requirements of those existing schemes. Um, you're gonna if you want to go uh, with the so, well, I guess I should say first of all, my my personal advice is um, that you might want to to to, to hold back to wait um, at this point um, until you've got. Uh, evidence that uh, that these schemes have the relevant accreditation, so the Woodland Carbon Code and the Peatland Code have uh, ACAS accreditation, that's UKAS, uh, the UK Accred- Accreditation Service, uh, for example. Uh, are they accredited to uh, ISO standards, um, things like that, so ISO standards, uh, and there are various relevant standards uh, that, that they can be accredited to. Uh, so, uh, so, so check those kinds of credentials uh, if you do want to be an early adopter of these. Um, one of the other reasons I would su- suggest um, that you might want to, to hold back is that uh, there is a danger that your, uh, the, the people that you are supplying, um, so say a supermarket for example, that they may uh, require you to uh, do some stuff to help them reach their net zero target. So, increasingly, companies are. Um, creating their own internal net zero targets and then uh, cascading that demand down to their suppliers and saying, yeah, we'll uh, keep working with you if you can deliver us some carbon benefits, um, emission reductions, um, uh, things like that alongside uh, the the services that you're providing for us, the products and, and stuff. Uh, and in most of the schemes that I've seen so uh, in my own research I've studied um, a scheme run uh, like this by Nestle and First Milk uh, then they will provide a milk premium uh, for you to deliver those uh, added benefits uh, but there is a the possibility in the future that um, some uh, perhaps less scrupulous um, buyers may uh, make it a condition uh, on them buying your your um, your produce that you produce, that, that, you, that you deliver uh, on some net zero targets of your own and if you've already, if you've already sold that to a third party then um, then you might have uh, you might have a challenge there. so uh, so I guess the first suggestion is you may you may want to kind of um, hold back on this but uh, as I said you can look at these schemes already and there are additionality and permanence requirements. Uh, The the key challenge, I think, is uh, based on the research that we've done with farmers and with investors, uh, farmers generally look for permanence periods of less than 10 years, and investors generally look for permanence periods of more than 10 years. Uh, This is something that we're going to be looking at uh, in particular in our consultation, and uh, the UK Farm Soul Carbon Code, whatever form it takes, whether it is a unitary uh, kind of gold standard code competing with existing codes, or whether it is uh, a, a, a kind of a framework to benchmark and level up um, and guide people towards uh, the best of the existing codes, we will be providing guidance on what good additionality and permanence looks like in terms of high integrity markets. Uh, and so, um, uh, and so, I think this is something that that will probably change over time. Um, uh, and uh, my my suspicion is that uh, this is going to move uh, towards longer rather than shorter permanence periods. Um, but there is going to be this balance. Uh, whilst we want something that uh, is high integrity, that is about real uh, and permanent climate benefits. And that's what investors want. Uh, if you don't have any farmers who are willing to sign up to one hundred year contracts, and, and there are schemes with one hundred year contract options in them, but working with soil carbon internationally at the moment, uh, then great, you've got a scheme, but you've got uh, you've got no carbon being generated because nobody's up for those terms. And so there is going to be a, a kind of a meeting somewhere in the middle. Um, and uh, to what extent that's something that is regulated or kind of falls out in terms of uh, how the market develops—that's um, anyone's guess, I guess.
0: Yeah, 100 euros sounds a little bit ambitious, I think. <laughs> just, I mean, just sticking on the, the theme of additionality um, some of the concerns that have been fed back, um, the, the land managers who've always farmed in a nature-friendly way or have already made that transition to more regenerative practices, I mean, they obviously have lower potential, I suppose, to make dramatic changes to carbon sequestration rates But then you've got other farmers who might not be best practice, um, high input, uh, intensive agriculture uh, with huge potential to make sequestration changes. Who's going to plug that gap? And are are the farmers that have already done it the the right way? um, Are they going to be penalised? Is there going to be some sort of additional funding for them or additional recognition?
1: Uh, yes, this is a, this is an awkward one, <laughs> um, and, and I'm going to give the honest but unpleasant answer, which is that um, if you have uh, done everything you can to manage your soil uh, to equilibrium um, with the maximum soil carbon that you can possibly store in that, and you can store no more through any action of your own, then you will not be able to uh, deliver additional carbon to carbon markets. Um, it's, It's as simple as that. Uh, is that fair? No, <laughs> clearly not, especially when you consider that your next door neighbour has degraded their soils, has um, done everything wrong. Um, and uh, and yet, uh, because of that, they've got plenty of headroom uh, to start sequestering and storing significantly more carbon. And if they then get with the programme and start um, managing more sustainably, uh, then they can actually uh, benefit from carbon markets uh, in in doing so. Uh, This also applies to people who uh, have taken public money to to do things, so uh, I was working recently with um, some peatland restoration projects and uh, had a a number of rather rather angry landowners um, who had been advised to to take um, uh, government funding for peatland restoration. Um, And they've done all the work and now they were saying, so there are these carbon markets, can we sell this carbon? And the answer, sadly, is no. If you did that work and you were prepared prepared to do that work uh, based on uh, available public funding um, and uh, and you haven't got any kind of paper trail saying that you did that with the expectation of accessing future carbon markets, uh, then you've done the work. Um, And if you look at it from the perspective of the investor, uh, why would I pay someone? Uh, to, for something that actually uh, they've already done and they were going to do anyway, there is no actual benefit to the climate. So if I'm trying to benefit the climate, then yeah, I don't look at someone who's done the work already. Uh, so uh, so yeah, it's a problem. Uh, it, it does reward people who have not treated their land well. Um, uh, and this is, works across all uh, carbon sequestration type markets. Um, uh, and uh, in fact, any land-based carbon market has this problem. Mm,
0: it's difficult to... It's a difficult pill to swallow isn't it mm. yeah so well, I mean what we don't want is people starting to plow up their fields um perfectly good habitat in the the hope that I think they'll get some recompense down the line
1: well this is partly where the baselining thing comes in and a lot of schemes actually have historic baselines um, and so, um, uh, where you've, where you've got farm records and the like, that can be taken into account. Um, and that's get, trying to, to catch people who have uh, purposefully plowed things off in order to access, um, access markets but um but yeah the 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 there's always the chance of of people trying to abuse the system and the the goal of uh, of our team in the UK farm soil carbon code is to try and ensure that uh, this is something that has high integrity uh, because if it doesn't then uh, then the whole market gets a bad name and then um given it's a market uh, market mechanism uh, demand drops out of that market and you don't have a market um, if this is seen as something that isn't actually real it's just hot air so i think it is important to to think about how we make sure this has as much integrity as possible because without that there is no market Uh, but at the same time there's a there's a balancing act to be done here where uh, if uh, if this is so high integrity that it uh, shuts out all farmers then you still don't have a market
0: absolutely um right moving on from additionality then (laughs) how how Do land managers know how much carbon that they need to hold on to for their own offsetting purposes? So obviously, it's not just the soil they've got to consider. It's a, I mean, on a farm, obviously various inputs, but then when you move on to the multifaceted estates, they might have some forestry, they might have massive areas or designated sites, um, which they can't touch. How, how, How do they know what they need to offset themselves?
1: Yeah, so many of the tools that exist uh, will enable you to do a, a kind of a carbon footprint for your whole operation, uh, so you can um, have a look and see where you currently stand. Um, and uh, and so if uh, what's coming down the line is perhaps uh, the, the people who are buying your products expect you to be um, uh, carbon neutral, um, uh, then, uh, then that's uh, perhaps one measure upon which you might get a sense of, right, that's maybe how far I need to go. Uh, of course, uh, as I said, uh, you could have uh, suppliers buying your uh, your, uh, your products who want more than that. They, they actually want um, uh, additional carbon um, uh, sequestered, stored, avoided uh, over and above um, uh, your kind of neutrality target uh, that they can count towards their own insetting targets um, through their supply chain. Uh, and so uh, I think how much to hold on to, uh, well, uh, getting a sense of your existing carbon footprint how far away you are from that, that might give you a sense of what you might uh, want to target. Uh, But uh, generically speaking, I think holding on to the more, uh, the better, because uh, not only do you hedge against the prospect of, uh, demands coming from uh, from buyers, but uh, also you uh, increase the likelihood that that carbon rises in value. Yeah. Now there's lots of big numbers being thrown around in terms of how much carbon might be worth um, per ton. People talking about hundreds of pounds per ton, um, and uh, and I think I would be very cautious <laughs> about that. Uh, it could be worth lots. Um, uh, equally, the the whole uh, mar- market might um, might drop out, uh, and it could uh, decrease and value. And I think you have to, to bear that in mind. Uh, it, it, so with, with the people in code in particular, uh, a way of hedging against that is that you might uh, pre-sell some of your uh, carbon um, uh, as pending issuance units so i've got some money in the bank uh, at the current uh, rate and in the people codes, code uh, the, the majority of sales of these pending issuance units are between 15 and 20 pounds um, we've seen some uh, up to 30 um, uh, and, uh, and it's kind of a, a rising trend but um but that's the kind of the amount that you can get at the moment uh, and so if things do decrease in the future at least you've got that in the bank and that might help you with some of your capital works uh, but uh, you would be wanting to, to try and hold on to as much of that as possible uh, yourself, because that uh, is likely to be worth more as those pending issuance units turn into actual verified units once you can prove that you've actually got that carbon uh, saving in the case of uh, of the peatlands.
0: Um, and
1: uh, and just in terms of the rising um, market trends, uh, the chances are that you'll be able to get more. Uh, the proposal um, uh, for the, that we currently have in terms of uh, farm soil carbon, um, so arable, dairy, things like that, uh, and I should say we're, we're starting with, uh, with with arable. Uh, the goal is to move into grassland systems in future, and there are schemes that currently operate in both, um, but in terms of uh, our work, um, we're focusing on, uh, on building integrity into the to arable soil carbon markets uh, as, as our starting point. But when it comes uh, to, to that, we're not planning on having pending issuance units, so the the idea of forward selling your carbon is something that, uh, that we're thinking we probably will not be looking at um, uh, just because it can go wrong. I forward sell my carbon and oops, I didn't get it. Now I've got a problem. <laughs> um, so just to keep things uh, as safe as possible, um, yeah, that's probably something that we'll avoid. But uh, when it comes to the additionality criteria, there's lots of these, and, and one of the key ones that uh, that you commonly see, um, they're, they're dropping this for the Woodland Carbon Code, but it's still in the Peatland Code, uh, is uh, the idea that you need to have a minimum amount of carbon finance. Um, so that means that in the Peatland Code, you can have up to 85% of your project costs paid through public uh, finance, through agri environment schemes and the like, as long as you've got at least 15%, which is from, um, from private finance, uh, carbon finance. And so a lot, a lot, what a lot of landowners are doing is, is they are actually putting that money up themselves. Uh, so they're saying, I'm going to invest my own capital uh, in that carbon for that 15%. Uh, and that means that I hold on to those carbon rights and get the right to sell them at a future date, um, uh, or I hedge my bets and I I, I I buy some of them and I I, I forward sell some of them uh, in in the peatland carbon markets. So um, yeah, lots of things to think about. <laughs>
0: Absolutely, it's mind boggling. I mean, you, you again, you touched on um, verification there. How long does it take? Between sort of baselining your soil carbon stocks before you can verify exactly what is being sequestered on an annual basis?
1: Um, so, different schemes have different rules on this. Um, and um, in terms of what we're going to stipulate as a minimum um, for the UK Farm Soil Carbon Code, I don't know what the answer to that is yet. Uh, But typically, you would um, uh, have a a validation visit uh, by an external certification body who can say, yeah, you've set this up, Um, uh, you've done everything that we'd expect, you've uh, implemented or started implementing the the interventions, great, Um, uh, we'll, we'll give you a thumbs up. Uh, then you would have uh, an initial uh, verification visit, and that could be um, uh, in as little as one year's time, depending on the kind of intervention that you uh, are doing. Uh, This could be five-yearly, ten-yearly, if you've got long uh, contract lengths, um, The key thing that you need to just bear in mind is that each of those uh, verification visits um, by an external verification body is going to cost and that then um, reduces uh, the the profit margin that you're going to get on your project at the end of the day. So it's just going to balance um, because uh, you can only release carbon units once they've been verified. Uh, so you're wanting to, to wait long enough that uh, that you're not spending a fortune on the verification. Um, but equally, um, the longer you wait, the longer you have to wait for the payments as well coming into you.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I suppose it all comes down to statistical significance at the end of the day as well.
1: Yeah, way up. And, and the scale of your project will matter. Bigger projects um, can probably afford to do it more frequently. But if you're working on a fairly small project scale, uh, then, uh, then your margins are going to be mm-hmm. much tighter.
0: Yeah. Um, oh, this is potentially the most difficult question. <laughs> how how do we determine who owns and who is responsible for carbon management in the case of tenants and landlords? Yes,
1: yeah, so this is really a, a crucial issue, and um, and something that uh, that multiple codes under development are kind of grappling with. Um, and uh, the reason it's so important is that as a landowner, uh, I might sign up uh, to a carbon contract and uh, and then claim that I'm going to deliver that. But I am entirely dependent on my tenants uh, if I've got my land all rented out. <laughs> so um, if I haven't got my tenants on side, then uh, there's a real risk that I'm not going to be able to deliver on that contract. Um, so um, there, there are lots of options um, out there and, um, and there's some quite uh, kind of nasty options out there in terms of well, depending on the nature of the tenancy, uh, actually changing the terms of that tenancy when it comes up. Um, and you'll know the kind of tenancy that you're on and, and to what extent that might be a, a risk. Um, but what, uh, what I'm encouraging people to do um, is to think about benefit sharing uh, contracts. Uh, so. Uh the, uh the the way that the that these typically operate are with uh, contracts between buyers and sellers uh, so in the people and co we don't get involved in that uh, it's entirely uh, between uh, the buyer and the seller usually organised by an intermediary. Um, but the advice that we give to people is that where possible, that there is that liaison uh, that, that that people talk to their tenants and that uh, that they engage with them uh, and and find uh, mechanisms for sharing those benefits with their tenants, given that their tenants are going to be ultimately delivering on that.
0: So it's it's going to depend on the individual landholdings and what they decide to do contractually between themselves.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so it's it's the, the the kind of contractual arrangements between uh, landowner and tenant and between buyer and seller and looking at what you can do there. Um the all of that the the codes themselves can do is stipulate um consultation. Uh, so uh, in the Peatland Code version two, which is coming out later this year, we are really beefing up those uh, consultation rules um, and making sure that people are doing that properly. Uh, and of course, if you've got tenants on your land, um, that's a very obvious uh, first port of call. But um, uh, there could be many other stakeholders um, who would have a real stake in what happens. That you need to demonstrate that you have given them the chance to feedback on what you're planning to do through a carbon market, uh, and uh, and hopefully adapt uh, where possible to
0: that feedback. Mm. Okay, um, and uh, you did mention the, the international codes earlier, um various codes out there. But uh, is there a specific reason then that they're not suitable for UK soils? Uh,
1: so there are a number of these international codes that operate in different jurisdictions and that operate internationally. So. Um, VERA, V-E-R-R-A, would be one example um, uh, and I'm just picking that off the top of my head but uh, there's a, a number of organisations that operate um, a, a voluntary carbon markets internationally that uh, are able to operate in the UK and there are uh, VERA codes um, uh, that are all about soil carbon that uh, in theory we could implement in the UK right now uh, if we wanted to. Uh, the issue however is that uh, these are designed for countries where you have significantly larger land holdings um, and uh, the the way that they work um they, they and partly because they are uh, privately owned and operated uh, schemes uh, the the costs of developing projects and getting them verified um, are quite eye-watering and in terms of the amount of carbon that you get and the amount of money that you can expect to get for that carbon um, for your average landholding in the UK, it, it just doesn't stack up. Um, and that was actually the reason why we came up with the, the UK's um in code. Initially, there were Peatland methodologies uh, operated um, by VCS, as it was known at the time, that we could have applied in the UK. Um, but uh, they, they were just simply not cost effective enough to do so um, in the UK context. Um, so, uh, so th- there, are, uh, there are options, um, but it's, it's about adapting them to, primarily to, uh, to, to, to the scale of operations. It's not a thing to do with soil types and things like that. It's much more to do with the scale of operation um, in this okay.
0: country. Okay, finally, uh, the million dollar question. <laughs> Can you indicate when we might expect publication of the code?
1: Yeah, so this is a project that has been funded by the Environment Agency, um, it's a UK-wide project funded by England's uh, Environment Agency, and our end date is end of November. Uh, and so, um, as I said, we're consulting on these two different models, um, and essentially we've got three different models, um, and uh, and there's one element that I can say we... Uh, will uh, have if that's what people want from the consultation by uh, end of November. But so uh, the first of the, of these three options is uh, a, a commercially viable soil carbon code. That uh, competes with existing schemes, codes, standards that are currently operating at small scales in uh, in the UK. Uh, the, it would be built uh, on a very similar model to the woodland carbon code, the peatland codes. Uh, we would hope it would have the same standing, um, uh, uh, and that is one option, um, uh, kind of going head to head with uh, with existing uh, operators uh, of of similar schemes uh, in in the UK. Um, feedback we've had from those schemes is um, please don't put us out of business and in fact you don't need to because there are some of us who are doing a great job already actually what we need is uh, someone to actually benchmark what the best people are doing to then give both investors and farmers the confidence that these schemes um, are good uh, and uh, have high integrity. And so this is this kind of idea of a framework uh, of of standards or benchmarks uh, that can then benchmark existing schemes, codes, um, uh, operators, uh, and and then direct people. If you want to go to something which is high integrity, this is where you go as an investor and as a as a as a farmer. Um, one way in which that might operate uh, might be that um, the, 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 uh, the, the schemes or codes that meet those those benchmarks uh, might be integrated uh, into the UK government's environmental reporting guidelines um, as the Woodland Carbon Code and the Peatland Code are at the moment uh, to be discussed obviously with policy stakeholders, um, but there would be some kind of official mechanism that would kind of give you that, that rubber stamp of, yeah, this is, uh, this is a high integrity uh, one that you can go with this, you can trust it. It's got all the checks and balances, risk mitigation things, buffers, stuff like that. So if everything goes wrong, you're not going to be left with someone trying to claw back their money. Um, you, you're going to be safe. <laughs> That's the idea. But there's a third option, which is kind of a combination of the, the first two, which is that, uh, that we come up with this kind of framework of, of benchmarks. Um, and we also then look to see, well, is there a gap in the market? Is there a need for a type of codes uh, that we could provide that could be kind of more government-funded, operated, uh, that fills a niche? And the feedback we've got so far in this process is that there might be something uh, for the kind of the really small-scale operators. Um, so in Scotland, crofters, perhaps um, a, a local authorities um, that have got projects that they want to run, that, uh, that are not cost-effective um, uh, with current um, market models. Um, and so some kind of subsidised scheme, uh, in the same way that in reality, uh, the, the Woodland Carbon Code and the Peatland Code are actually quite heavily subsidised by government, something that could then provide a very low-cost way of, of, of enabling um, uh, projects to, to come into the market that otherwise wouldn't be able to come in in the existing kind of ecosystem of, of products that are on offer. What that is, who knows, um, it's it's about filling a niche and and understanding what that niche is. So in terms of timing, um, what we would uh, would want to have uh, by the end of November uh, is uh, that framework, um, uh, all of those uh, benchmarking standards uh, and have something published and operational with clear governance and ownership uh, and all of that kind of stuff um, uh, by by that point. Um, In terms of, well... In terms of actually operating, that's maybe actually a step further, uh, but actually have the the proposal for exactly how this is going to operate um, by that point. Uh, And then recommendations for a code of some type, uh, if that is what is deemed necessary to fill the niche. Uh, If, on the other hand, the consultation comes up with the idea that, yeah, we need to go with that original plan um, of uh, a single unitary uh, UK farm soil carbon code, Uh, then uh, I would hope that we would be at a point um, uh, where we have a draft code uh, that we would have piloted in a series of pilot farms that we've uh, already been working with at the moment. Uh, in terms of actually having piloted the whole code itself, though, you know, the whole investment pipeline, that's something that wouldn't have happened. And there would be, then be an additional phase um, after that, uh, where we are piloting uh, the whole of that code process uh, on a trial basis before then scaling that up. Uh, and so I'd be looking at that scaling up phase based on our experience in the Peatland codes um, being sometime next year at the earliest, if we went with that plan.
0: Okay, so there are a few potential options there then. Um, but by well by the middle of next year, then potentially there'll be definitely something operational.
1: Uh, yeah, end of this year, some 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 kind of guidance to um here are some of the 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 best schemes uh out. well I, know, I guess that's it's operational, isn't it? So by the end of this year we'll have the plan for that. So yeah, probably early next year you might be able to to see that uh that you kind know, of benchmarking process rolling out and signposting um the, the best in the market, while others kind of level up based on that feedback. Um, I can imagine some kind of legal wranglings over exactly when stuff like that is published so maybe I shouldn't be too optimistic um, in terms of the people who don't meet the benchmark wanting time to then revise and um, and be included in that so um, yeah I guess sometime next year is probably my best answer isn't it?
0: <laughs> for operational maybe yes well that, yeah. I mean thank you very much Mark um, I think you've definitely answered a few, few of the, the regularly asked questions there anyway pleasure Absolute to have you with us um, so i would mean, i'd like to thank you mark for joining me today anyway please remember that we have a variety of events scheduled for members um, visit our website for more information on our upcoming lineup and book your places and the latest edition of land business magazine is also available online now if you've enjoyed listening to today's episode please consider subscribing or following the podcast on your preferred streaming platform Finally, if you're not yet an SLE member and want to find out more about what an SLE membership could do for you, more information can be found about the different packages at uk. Once again, thank you, Professor Mark Reid, for speaking with me and to our audience for listening. And we hope you will join us again for our next episode soon.